For those people who like Freakonomics mm-hmm. or Planet Money or Invisibilia or people who listen to, you know, Malcolm Gladwell and see that the social sciences, the economic sciences, political science, psychology, they seem to be giving me a lot of insight and knowledge and wisdom. This is a show for them because I want to convince people, you know what philosophy does too. And I want to bring it to them the same way those shows have brought insight to them. Do you want to give the tagline for Hi-Fi Nation? Sure. Hi-Fi Nation, um, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. For this episode, we're going to get a little bit meta. We're going to learn about podcasts. Yes, I know, a podcast about podcasts. I'll spare you the jokes. But I promise, it'll be worth your while. You're listening to the second episode of Audible Ethics, a podcast from Duke University's Keenan Institute for Ethics that takes on interesting topics and asks relevant questions. I'm David Wooliver Sanchez. And before we start, the views expressed are those of the speakers. Podcasts, a refreshing way to explain an issue, inform people about some new idea, tell a story, or just straight up entertain. But for this episode, we're going to dig a little deeper. What is happening when we ask people for part of their day to share an idea? What are the responsibilities involved? Am I, as a podcaster, obligated to share every side of a question? Or is the podcaster doing a disservice by simplifying down a topic too much? To dig into these questions, I sat down with philosophy professor Barry Lamb. I'll let him introduce himself soon. He produces a new podcast called Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. You should really check it out. Together, we talked about the process he went through to form the idea for his innovative and ambitious podcast. We're going to talk about simplification. We're going to talk about stories and the responsibilities involved. It was a great conversation. Let's listen in. Yeah, I'm Barry Lamb. I am an associate professor of philosophy at Vassar College. I'm at Duke University this year on a fellowship. I'm also the host and executive producer of the podcast Hi-Fi Nation. I've had this idea that I wanted to do a narrative documentary style show, radio show, audio show, for philosophy. I've had this idea for a long time, maybe five years I've had this idea. And everything in life got in the way. But I'll tell you when it it really peaked for me. About four years ago, I was called to West Point, which is a military academy, the the Army school, right? If you see Army football, that's it's West Point. And they were having a like a conference on, you know, teaching philosophy to cadets. So the way West Point works is you go it's kind of like a college, but it's also kind of military training. And when you're done, you have to serve in the military for at least five years, um, if not more. Most people make a whole career out of it. And very important to them is philosophy. It's a required course. All these army officers have to understand and think about the ethics and law of war. And ethics in general is a big important aspect of being an army leadership. And I thought that, first of all, I never thought about that. I thought that's really interesting. But of course, if you're going to have people lead the armed forces, 
in one of the most destructive acts that human beings can partake in, which is war, you want people to have some thought about rightness or wrongness of killing and conduct in wars. Um, so that made sense. But what was interesting to me was I was sitting around a bunch of soldiers, which, you know, I spent my life in academia, in colleges. You're not a lot around a lot of soldiers, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was around a lot of soldiers and I thought, they must have amazing stories about fighting in these wars that we've been fighting at that point for 10 years, really. And a lot of them had not were not only veterans of these wars, but they were really interested in philosophy, in particular the philosophy of war. Mm-hmm. So much so that they kind of they wanted to do PhDs, they wanted to write books. Meanwhile, they might go back to the wars that they were that we were fighting at that time. I said, that's a wonderful story. Somebody should really tell that story. But nobody was doing that. Um, I was a big fan of you know, this genre of radio and audio production. And I thought, you know what? I want to do it. I want to be the one who, who does that. And so um, a year ago, I decided that I was going to stop doing what I was doing, which was what a lot of philosophy professors do, and bought a recorder and a couple of microphones, and I went out and I started doing it. Um, I started um, looking for soldiers who had interesting stories that had philosophical um, conflicts in it in addition to the human conflicts. That was the idea I had for the show, where human conflicts meet philosophical conflicts, and to bring philosophy out of that so that when people listen, they would be drawn in by the human conflicts, Mm -hmm. and they would gain a little bit of knowledge and understanding from the philosophy side. Um, that's the idea for the whole show. It wasn't going to be just about war, but I produced two episodes about war. Um, and so from then on, you know, Duke University, which is where we're sitting right now, (laughs) offered me a fellowship to produce this whole season, you know, which I'm going to do. I'm going to do 10 episodes this year, um, with that, um, in mind. And so I think the right way to describe it is um, it's a whole new kind of research. You research into human interest stories and human conflicts. Then you do a kind of research into the philosophy behind it. And then for me, because I'm not just a, I'm not a reporter, I wanted to come up with some thoughts about it. I wanted to not just hear what other people had to say, but I wanted to say something myself about some of these philosophical issues. And, I, and I'm doing that as well. Has anything been particularly unexpected or surprising as you've started on this journey? I went into it thinking that my training as a PhD in philosophy, as a professor for 10 years in the philosophy, that the philosophy side would be the side that would be most natural and that the journalism investigation interviewing people who just had interesting stories to tell, that that would be the most challenging, Mm -hmm. that that would be outside of my comfort zone and harder. It's not what I knew how to do. In the process of producing this, it's been the opposite. Finding people, talking to them, getting their stories. I'm not great at it. The professionals are so much better. I listen to some of these 
wonderful shows and they're just so good. But it wasn't as hard putting together the story side as it has been putting together the philosophy side. Partly it's because I've had to do research into philosophy that was not my area. But part of it has to do with something that I think is seriously underestimated among people who are philosophers by training, which is that writing for people who are not philosophers and deciding what to talk about for people who are not philosophers and for people who will probably only spend about 20, 30 minutes, and if you bore them, they will turn you off. Putting together philosophy for them has been a really challenging task because I'm already interested in it. I have to get into the mindset of somebody who's not interested in it and how I can get them to be interested in it and stay interested in it. Two of Hi-Fi Nation's earliest episodes looked at war and the soldiers involved. It examined questions like, who is to blame? Are soldiers wrong to fight for their countries, regardless of which side they take? Is something that's not okay during peacetime suddenly permissible during a war? These are tough, delicate, and important questions, making it a very difficult issue to tackle. For these episodes, he spoke with philosophers, professors, and members of the armed forces to get first-hand thoughts while considering the soldier philosopher. These questions are very tangible, and they have real-world implications. What does that mean for telling their stories and exploring this topic with an audience? Absolutely. And one of the frustrations, I think, with the philosophical approach to moral decision-making, I think I see this in undergraduates who are starting to think about it. I see this in the public. And I see this with soldiers who are like coming back from war and experienced in philosophy, trying to write about it, is that there's a style of philosophical thinking, which is rightly so trying to simplify a difficult question in such a way that after it's been simplified, it's been stripped of the kind of complexity that I think people who are faced with a real-life decision have to face. Mm -hmm. And that can be frustrating to people who come to philosophy hoping to get some insight. And the very first thing that they encounter is an oversimplified problem. There are good reasons why philosophers try to oversimplify a problem because they want to solve the simple case first and then the, to add the complexity on top of that to see how the complexity changes the simple case. So one thing that I have in mind are things like trolley problems, mm -hmm. right? If somebody said, I had a very difficult um, situation in the war. Mm -hmm. This is what happened. And I was faced with, with this decision. And when they come to that kind of decision, a point of decision in a tough, tough situation, and they see philosophers talking about, well, suppose someone's tied down to a track and one person's going to get killed, yeah. but you can divert the track and you can kill five. What's it? They, I can see how somebody who doesn't know the history of philosophy and what philosophy is trying to do in that kind of case can say, okay, that's a game. We're talking about real life here. And I could see the frustration. It's part of the challenge, I think, when you have a class and you have 
you know, 25 students or 30 students, and you have a whole semester to explain why you're doing something, what's the point of it, and the methods involved. And bring, when you have a seminar, you have a class, you have all that time, you have a luxury in a way that, say, in a podcast that's, you know, 40 minutes, and you want to keep people listening, you don't. So um, I think it's the same kind of challenge, the challenge of bringing philosophy to that group and also convincing people who have difficult moral decisions from or real life decisions that philosophy has something to offer them when the very first thing they might encounter doesn't look like it touches upon their decisions at all. What are the ethical responsibilities of a podcaster? When someone asks for part of your day to explore an idea, that will inevitably influence how you think about an issue. It might be the first time you consider something or it might even change your mind about a belief that you used to hold. This shouldn't be taken lightly. What does that mean for producing your content responsibly? It seems like a, a big responsibility. You said that one of your target audiences, or maybe your main audience, is people who aren't necessarily that interested in philosophy originally. Um, so you're you know, putting together a show where you're trying to reach those people. Um, I, what do you think about that? Like, it seems like that's a, you're in a very unique situation that a lot of people or in a lot of philosophers won't find themselves in very often. I've put myself in that situation. So I'm going to shoulder the responsibility. It's not going to be much responsibility unless people listen, <laughs> right? Yeah. And as soon as people listen, then people are going to put that responsibility. So, you know, right now it's the beginning of the show, mm -hmm. Right. And, um, you know, the listener base is probably not all that big and probably mostly in my social circles, which is, which is philosophers. Um, and so I'm not going to get much criticism. Um, but as soon as you start venturing off into speaking about things or producing things for people and saying this is philosophy, you're going to get criticism for ignoring some things and um, so oversimplifying things because you, you, you have to. You have philosophers who decide to write for the public or speak for the public will have to shoulder the responsibility that um, they will have to sacrifice a lot of what you don't have to sacrifice in your academic writing to in order to reach that public. Hmm. And that sacrifice will come with a lot of criticism. And one thing that I think people have to do, and I have to keep thinking about this myself, is whenever you face criticism, the best thing to do is to say, okay, is the original goal that I had a good goal, a good goal to have on this particular topic? If I want to do a topic about war, for instance, and since you heard the episodes, you know that you know, the first episode was about bringing to light this view that you can be exploited morally. Mm -hmm. Right, So is that a legitimate goal to get the public to think about? Second, given that it is, is this criticism that you ignored something or you overlooked something? Are you okay with the fact that in trying to accomplish that goal, it was necessary to overlook that? Because in order to get to that goal, you had to cut, not make something too long, you have to ignore certain responses because you can't go on forever and so on. And you have to be okay with it. Once I get to that point and I say to myself, no, I, I am okay with it given this goal, then I'm okay with the criticism. 
But if the criticism comes and I said, look, there's a legitimate point here, then I think I would, you know, go on the next episode and say I must have so I'm I'm willing to accept criticism and all that. It's shouldering the responsibility. It's not just ignoring criticism, but I think that it's knowing how to take criticism mm -hmm. and accept it and think about it. There's a very fine line between making something accessible and oversimplifying an issue. The famous author Malcolm Gladwell, for example, has drawn some criticism for taking too much of the complexity or nuance out of some issues in order to make them simpler. Is this a problem? Where is the line? People would never listen to your podcast if it was like a PhD dissertation or an audible encyclopedia. But you don't want to mislead and make something sound more straightforward than it actually is. So there's this almost inherent trade-off between complexity and digestibility. Where does one draw the line? I draw the line at a different place than Gladwell, but everybody has to draw the line somewhere. Philosophers, including myself, including, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of his recent podcast. Um, I teach at an institution that he reported on in that podcast. I oh. teach at Vassar. He had a whole episode about Vassar. And um, I actually thought he got some things incorrect about that in that reporting, but, you know, he's used to people criticizing him that he got something incorrect about it. I draw the line at not getting anything incorrect. I don't want to say somebody's view and that not being it ended up being their view. Mm -hmm. I think that I, I try to be a lot more faithful to the original, to the spirit of academic work because I am an academic in my own show. But the point that you can't have a PhD dissertation level presentation <laughs> of a piece of work, it's a completely legitimate point. I think because I am an academic first mm -hmm. that my approach is a little bit more academically rigorous, I think, mm -hmm. than Gladwell. But I think Gladwell, because of his experience and his training, he's got way more on me on the storytelling side because mm. um, that's what he is. He's a good storyteller. Yeah. Right. His, his books are like long form New Yorker articles, except just like an entire book. That's right. <laughs> like, that's yeah. right. And, you know, you know, we could, we should all be so lucky as to have that kind of gift. Um, that being said, um, I completely, I understand Gladwell's response and I understand the criticisms too. As an academic, I understand the criticisms. Mm -hmm. There are certain things, it's not just oversimplification. Some, some of the times academics have said that the entire message and spirit of the original studies might be lost in Gladwell. So, you know, that's not coming to me. Not, not you know, millions of people aren't listening to my podcast. <laughs> at least not yet. <laughs> After your interview, maybe. Right? <laughs> um, but, um, but I would be very happy to face that problem <laughs> that Gladwell has. As a podcaster, interviewing interesting and well-informed experts has helped me see some issues in a new light. My last episode, for example, with Professor Sinid Armstrong, had me thinking about things I had never before considered. I asked Professor Lamb if he's updated any of his ideas or beliefs after going through this process of producing episodes about these tough questions. 
I have come to a lot more views about things than I ever did when I was in philosophy, just philosophy. First of all, when I was in philosophy, I worked in a very narrow area in epistemology and to a lesser extent philosophy of language, to which I, I still have a lot of interests in. But this has required me to venture out into areas that I had never, ever studied and probably never would have if I was still worried about peer-reviewed journal articles, which is the way what you're supposed to worry about when you're a philosophy professor. Um, so that's one thing. So I did have come to have views about things. One view that I had, which was cemented, came out of that first episode. So that episode was called Wishes of the Dead, and that episode was about all of these institutions that we have in this country and other countries as well, where the rich can tie up their money forever, right? So if I make a million dollars and I die, I can say, that million dollars has to be done. You have to do this with it. But I'm dead, right? But people still feel like they have to do what, exactly what I wanted. Yeah. In the law, everybody does that. And the power has just increased over the years. And I found a kind of injustice in that. And when I went into the research in the real world and legal cases for that, I, I still felt that. I felt that even more strongly. With the episodes on war, I came to have a lot of beliefs about the ethics and law of war that I didn't before because I had never really thought about it. That second episode was about this view called revisionist just war theory, which is this idea that I thought sounded perfectly fine, which is that there's no special morality of war, that when you kill in war, it's only okay when it's okay to kill in real life in that same circumstance. That's mm -hmm. it, Yeah. right? And that actually runs contrary to a long history of thinking about war. It goes, it runs count, contrary to all of the laws of war that we have, which is that a soldier can't be prosecuted for just fighting, right? A soldier has to commit a war crime, and what a war crime is, is you kill a civilian who is not a threat or something like that. I came away from producing those two episodes, thinking that what was called classical just war theory, this idea that soldiers on either side of a war aren't doing anything wrong just by fighting in a war, has an indispensable role in a lot of legitimate moral practices, like the humane treatment of prisoners of war or detainees. So for instance, consider a Nazi soldier right? And you capture the Nazi soldier. A Nazi soldier, right? Um, according to the revisionist view, assuming that the Nazis were unjustified in invasion and, 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 and so on, everything else that the Nazis did, they were doing something morally wrong. And somebody who does something morally wrong ought to be subject to institutions that punish and deter moral wrongs, prisons, shame, maybe even the death penalty if people believe in that. Classical just war theory says, no, they're just the soldier on the other side. They're not doing anything morally wrong. So detaining them is just a way of, of increasing your chances of military victory. The fewer troops they have on their side fighting, the likelier you are. So given that it's just that, they're just an instrument to increase your victory, your chances of victory. There's no reason why you have to mistreat them subject them to courts or any other institutions 
they're just soldiers. They aren't doing anything wrong. And you set them aside, treat them humanely so they don't fight in there for the other side. And when the war is over, you let them go. You don't prosecute them because they weren't doing anything wrong. When I think about what's been going on in Iraq and in the war on terror, I've come to think Americans since 9-11, and you're young, so you were a kid mm. when that happened. Yeah, some pre-K. But you grew up in the entire aftermath of 9-11, right? I mean, you grew up, you were raised from a childhood on after 9-11. So you don't mm. know what it was like before 9-11, sure. right? I, don't th I think it's very easy for Americans after 9-11 to think of every enemy that the U.S. has faced as not a combatant, as somebody who is fighting for their side, but they're not doing anything wrong, yeah. but rather as someone evil, a terrorist, or, I mean, someone evil, someone doing wrong things to Americans. And when you think that way, I can start understanding things like the travel ban. These are people who have done wrong things, right? People from these countries and so on and so forth. A soldier in the past, a soldier for Nazi Germany, which was every soldier in World War II, once the war was over, 1960s, 1970s, would we have thought in America, there's no possible way anybody who ever fought for Nazi, Nazi Germany could visit America, could immigrate to America, could even become an American citizen, mm. right? I don't think we would have ever thought that because we thought they were fighting for their side, we fight for our side, we've made peace, our countries are, right? We now accept them. Vietnam, John Kerry, his last day on the job, his last days, went to Vietnam, met with the soldier who fired at him trying to save his friend, this guy who Kerry chased down and killed in Vietnam. There's so many so stories of soldiers from Vietnam on our side and soldiers for the Viet Cong embracing each other as brothers, thinking of themselves as just combatants in a war. I don't see that happening with the war on terror. I just don't see that happening. I think we've conditioned ourselves to see that everybody on the other side is evil in that they're doing something morally wrong. I'm not saying that Jeff McMahon, Helen Fro, these people who are revisionists are people who are justifying that. But on classical just war theory, being a combatant isn't anything morally wrong. Just being a combatant, right, fighting for your side. Mm. And I think that that is, I'm starting to think that that plays an important role in how we understand soldiers, combatants on the other side. That's lost now. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and listen to the next episodes. Then, if you're willing, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That way, other people can discover us more easily. Find and share us on Facebook or Twitter and send comments, questions, or ideas to keenanpodcast at gmail.com. Also, just a quick shout out. I wanted to thank you all for helping us get to over 250 downloads so far. Audible Ethics is a product of Team Keenan, the Keenan Institute for Ethics. I'd like to thank Professor Lamb for sitting down with me for this episode. Be sure to check out his podcast, Hi-Fi Nations, on iTunes and beyond. I'd also like to thank the student team at Team Keenan and the staff that makes it all possible. Music came from Podcast Safe Musical Selections under the Creative Commons licensing. I'd like to thank the following artists for making their work available. Krakatoa, Chris Zabriskie, Akchiku, James Shaw, Jazar, and Rogue for Free. This episode was written, edited, and produced by myself, 
and was edited on Adobe Audition from the Creative Cloud provided by Duke University. My name is David Wolliver Sanchez. Thanks for listening and see you next time.